Take Sports Podcast presented by Sib Sports. This is your host, John Ashgar, and today with me I have my good friend Jack Vandermater. How's it going, John? Today is a special day because our guest is a world-renowned speaker, negotiator, and sports agent. He has represented some of the biggest names in sports, such as Cal Ripken Jr., Joe Maurer, and Eddie Murray. He is the author of multiple best-selling business books, including The Power of Nice. We're pleased to welcome Ron Shapiro on our show today. Thank you, Ron, for coming on the show today. It's a great pleasure having you with us. And it's um, my pleasure to be with both of you. Awesome. So first question, um, how did you approach the sports industry and get a foot in the door? And a follow-up is, do you have any advice for aspiring young people looking to get into the sports world? Well, there are going to be two different tracks that we take here. Because I really didn't aspire to be in the sports business. Um, I, I am frequently called the accidental agent. Right. And what that means is uh, I went to law school. I came out of law school. I got involved with civil rights law. And this is all tie into baseball in a minute. Um, and after getting involved with civil rights law, my law firm said, well, you're doing good works, but that doesn't make any money for us. So here's some securities books. That's investment law. You do this too, and you'll make money at that and help the community with civil rights law. And basically, the civil rights practice was desegregating housing in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And it also involved advising students who wanted to leave the country because of the Vietnam War. And uh, they would, in effect, renounce their citizenship, which didn't make a lot of sense. There had to be an alternative. And... I was in law practice. Uh, I, a, a couple years passed. I, I became the securities commissioner of the state of Maryland, became visible for busting investment fraud. And you're going to say to yourselves, well, what does all this have to do with our show? And the answer is that in 1975, after I had retired as securities commissioner, I got a call from the owner of the Baltimore Orioles. His name was Gerald Huffberger. And he said, uh, we don't know each other, but I would like you to help our legend. And the legend was a guy named Brooks Robinson, who's in the Hall of Fame, a third baseman. He's going to go bankrupt. Uh, He's made bad investments and he needs help. And I said, "Okay." it's like asking a kid to go into a candy store. Instead of going to the bar library, I could go to the ball field and talk to Brooks. And I advised Brooks and worked him out of his financial mess. And at the end of that, he said, the Orioles sent me a contract with a big reduction. Would you negotiate it? And guys, understand, 1975 is the year when agents first came on the scene because McNally-Messerschmitt decision was decided by an arbitrator. The union was becoming stronger. And my timing was good. So I said to Brooks, sure, I'll help you do your last contract. And I did. And that's a story unto itself. If you want to ask me questions about it, you can. But the long and the short of it is uh, that after I finished that, Brooks said, you ought to help other guys. And I thought he meant help them with their finances so they wouldn't get in trouble like he did. And he meant, well, maybe be an agent, too, because the players really didn't care so much to have a financial advisor as to have this thing called an agent. And when I started in the mid-70s, maybe there were uh, 10 agents. Today, there are thousands of agents. There are more agents than there are players. Um, And so I was an agent by accident, and I got very lucky to 
I was like a disease on the Orioles. I spread. <laughs> I ended up in the 1983 World Series with <clears throat> 21 of the 25 players at one point in the season. That's um, incredible. I got players on other teams. Things just happened. I ended up with five Hall of Famers, which I think as of today is still more than anyone else, but that'll change soon. Um, and the bottom line is I was an agent by accident. What my cool. advice to young people getting into the profession today would be, it isn't probably going to happen by accident anymore. Right. <laughs> and it's going to take a lot of perseverance because there are more agents than there are players, partly partly because there's so much money involved. Mm -hmm. And people, both unscrupulous as well as very scrupulous people, um, find themselves in the business for one reason or another. And so young people who get into the business by themselves may get a client or two and then find that they're pilfered by someone who wants that client. Yeah. If they get lucky and they can uh, end up with a big agency, maybe they'll have some protection, but it's tough. So my advice is aspire to be in the sports business, but have something else planned. Like I had the practice of law. Some people have teaching. Some people have selling real estate. Be very good at that and follow what I call the career opportunistic approach to life, which is you may not be in the career you want right away, but be the best you can be at it. <clears throat> and if an opportunity comes, then you may be able to grab it. Jump on it. That yeah. makes sense. That's awesome. That's, um, that's great advice. Um, being good in separate things and putting your hardest work into everything. I like that. So whether it was early in your career or even now, who has been one person in sports, in the sports world, who has influenced you and kept pushing you while you've had doubts or lows? You know, I, I can't say that I had anyone who has been pushing me, okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. But I had a, a partner, someone who I've worked with for almost 40 years, a guy named Michael Moss, who, who doesn't push me, but he's my devil's advocate which means when I'm in a deal, and I, I write about this in one of my books, when I'm in a deal and I have an idea, I turn to my devil's advocate, Michael Moss, and he'll question what I'm doing. So he's, he's not promoting self-confidence. He's promoting a little self-doubt to slow me down, to make sure yeah. I'm thinking things through the right way. And we've worked as a great team for almost mm -hmm. 40 years. I mean, there are people in the sports world with whom I've worked who say I've helped them, and that motivates me to want to help them and others. Um, but there's been no pusher or mentor, per se. So just have good connections around, around the horn. And people that can well, help. Well, it's not even – it's just it's, – it's, again, it's good fortune. It's going in with the right yeah. people. But I had enough self-confidence that I could lift myself up and keep going. Plus, I had that fallback of being a lawyer, and if it didn't work out, I didn't have a right. whole lot to worry about. So, we have your book right here, The Power of Nice. I like and that book. Yeah. It's, it's a great book. And so, we, we've heard a lot about your one story with Cal Ripken Jr. So, we'll just tell a little bit about the story for people who don't know. Um, you signed Cal Ripken as an amateur junior. And you brought him into your office, and 
you just talked to him and you fed him a tuna fish sandwich. And other agents were out there who are whining and dining him, taking him to California and New York with steak and lobster dinners. But uh, you just kept it basic and you talk about it, talk about it in interviews and in your book and just how you need confidence and you need prior knowledge. You have to prepare. So our question is, what aspect helped you the most in your initial meeting with Cal? And additionally, what gave you the confidence that made you think you could win over Cal? Well, let me let me set a couple of things straight just a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. One, uh, I didn't write about it in my book. Cal wrote about it in the foreword to my yeah, book. Yeah, right. his view, and he wrote about how he was wined and dined, and how all he got in my office was a wooden table and a tuna fish sandwich. Yeah, uh, he did get a soft drink too, and. Uh, <laughs> And, and basically, I just had a value system that guided me. I mean, I, I people said to me, you're going to be an agent. Agents are the worst people on the face of the earth, you know, and all the reputation you built in law is going to cause the pinstripes to fall off your suit. I mean, you're going to be a, a, an evildoer. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. So starting with Brooks Robinson, who was an amazing values guy committed to the community, committed to other people, through Cal and Kirby and others, um, and Joe Maurer. You know, I was a lucky, again, I'm a lucky guy. I held to my values. I, I wouldn't have been comfortable in a nightclub. Um, I invited him to my office. Also, his father knew of me. I, by the way, he was a young professional, not an amateur when I signed him. He was already up, and he came to my office his father had suggested it and knew me through the Oriole players I represented. And so, you know, I had enough confidence in my values that if the player didn't embrace those, then maybe he wasn't the right player for me. And that happened on a few occasions. Does that make sense? Yeah, that it makes does. perfect sense. That's interesting how even a player of that magnitude, you can still keep, you know, and hold on to those values. He wasn't a player of that magnitude then. He was a rookie. Um, right. But so he was... High drafted rookie, but right. you know what? Joe Maurer is a better example because he was Joe Maurer was football player of the year and baseball player of the year in USA Today in one year. The whole yeah. you know he was the most sought after guy by two leagues in in sports. And but his parents heard about me from an umpire, and I met with them even before I met with Joe and. They bought into the ideas and values, and they had great values. So there was a match, and that's really what it's all about. That's very good. So kind of leading into our next question, and it kind of involves Joe Maurer. Um, so Joe Maurer was kind of, as we know, your last active client, um, and he recently hung up his cleats. Um, and kind of, it kind of marked an end to uh, a storied career as an agent. Um, so first of all, how... Has it been an honor uh, representing Joe Maurer? And then second of all, how did it feel uh, knowing that your road as an agent has kind of come to an end? And what do you kind of plan on doing in the future? Well, it's it's significant. Today is really a significant day because I got an email from the Major League Baseball Players Association telling them that they got my notice that I wanted to be put on the inactive list as agent. So this huh. conversation occurs uh, significant day but joe marked the end of because of, i stopped take, taking clients right about yeah. seven or eight years ago joe was the last i took maybe i took one other along the way but 
Uh, and that was by choice. So, you know, winning Joe Maurer over was pretty easy because the values matched immediately. Uh-huh. How, it felt, how it felt representing him was, was just awesome. So the point I want to make is, in the first four or five years of his career, it was easy because Joe was a wonderful person. Uh, we worked together on his contracts. We, we did good things uh, and, and loved his family. And it was just, it was like family. Uh, you know, every time we were with Joe, it was fun. And I was proud to say to people we represented Joe Mauer because not only was he on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was chasing 100 uh, and recognized as a great player, but everyone respected him as a good man. And that really was the, I mean, to me, that was the essence of representation. But then he started to have a series of injuries and other things occurred and had a condition which impacted on his physical self. And his career started to slide a little bit. The work increased. I mean, you know, we had to work with him on medical things. We had to work with him on career things. We had a big contract come up in the middle of the first round of injuries. And we had to, it was up to the team to decide whether they wanted to sign him. And as you know, we ended up with one of the biggest contracts in baseball at the time, certainly the biggest for any catcher in history. I think it was $184 million over eight years or something. It was big. Um, so working for Cal was prototypical of what being an agent should be, and that is, you know, supporting him while he achieved great success in his baseball, negotiating for him and making sure he didn't get in any bad business or financial deals. And we he had a financial advisor to help him with that too, and helping him deal with the challenges that arose in the game particularly those in a physical sense, sometimes in a team sense, but we had a great relationship with the team because that book you held up, The Power of Nice, that's how to negotiate so everyone wins, especially you, but you think about the team too. So we built, and it's about building good relationships as well as building good deals. So we ended up with good relationships with the twins. And when we had the deal with challenges that impacted on the team or were posed by the team, we had great communication. So guys, representing Joe Maurer was terrific. And having him be the last guy we formally represented, that was great too. And and you then said, what what am I doing now? Well, you know, I always believed in alternatives. And some of my agent friends would make fun of me. I remember one said, I can't believe you're doing this and that. And I said, well, I'm doing it. And I started a negotiations institute in 1995 to train people in negotiation skills, not just agents, business people, doctors, nurses, the person who called during this call, a musician or a musical person, people from all walks of life, um, even in international dealings. Um, And so when this career comes to an end, I had other careers that were going. And even when I stopped taking players, I started to work with NBA teams and mm-hmm. advising and teaching and training them and only took three so we could avoid conflicts of interest. Um, work with an NFL, NFL team. I'm special advisor to the owner of the Ravens. So I have enough on my plate professionally coupled with a commitment to my community that life is full. 
even though I'm old. And that that kind of plays into our next question. So you are, I guess you could say recently opened Shapiro Advisors LLC. That was about two years ago. Uh, Shapiro Advisors LLC came about two years ago because I decided after almost over 20 years that I would give Shapiro Negotiations Institute over to the younger people working there to train people in negotiations, to do research on negotiations and the like. And I would just be a, a deal coach and an advisor on sort of a freelance basis. That's where the NBA teams are. That's where some of the small companies I deal with are. And a lot of pro bono work is, meaning for organizations and people who couldn't afford me otherwise. But that's the beginning of Shapiro Advisors LLC. So our, 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 you kind of answer our next question, but we're just going to ask, like, what made you decide to take this path at this point in your career? I, I love, I'm writing a tweet today, and it's about the joy of giving advice to others. Now, it's a responsibility, too. And, and right. yeah, I love advising other people, whatever they may do, whatever walk of life they're in. And I love leading them to results which are good for them. And I figured the name Shapiro Advisors was appropriate after Shapiro Negotiations because it allowed me to continue mm -hmm. negotiations if I worked with my old team. And But it allowed me to put the focus on you come to me and I give you advice, not necessarily legal advice, but life advice so that hopefully you get where you want to go with something. So to that point, you love advising people. Um, how has your career and your love for advising helped uh, your children and kind of make the, and help their careers in the sports world? And did you push them towards that industry? Well, understand, I have seven children, and the oldest is visibly in the sports industry because he's the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays and was the CEO of the Cleveland Indians right. and helped craft some of their success. And my youngest son is in the sports marketing business. Uh, on his own, started his own little company. He's like me. Um, in between, five of them are, you know, in medically related fields, financially related fields, coaching, um, community, different things. They all do different things. Um, and, and, you know, my approach to giving advice, which was people are the most important thing and recognizing their needs and being a giver as well as a taker. There's a saying all my kids repeat time and time again, which I shared with them. It was an old Winston Churchill quote. You make a living by what you get. You make a life by what you give. Well, they live by that. And those in the sports world also live by my book called Dare to Prepare, which is about being very well prepared. So Mark Shapiro, who is taking the Toronto Blue Jays through a rebuild now, as he did the Cleveland yeah. Indians, um, is very, very good at, at preparing. And they all are. They all get it. So uh, through my teachings, not necessarily through my teaching them, but them picking it up by following an example, they've all, in whatever their chosen field, sports or non-sports, uh, have become pretty good because they realize it's the work you invest in doing something that's important to getting the results you want. Exactly. If you're not putting in the work, you're not going to get results. Right. You have to invest everything so you can get your goals. Right. 
All right. Kind of a question, you know, we, this is obviously a Cleveland sports podcast. We love Cleveland sports. And we have a big, uh, big uh, contract I, you're, looming. You're, you're doing well right now. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, we, we've heard you. Uh, you didn't, or you don't like this question. I don't know. We kind of just wanted to ask it. Go ahead. Um, so, Francisco Lindor, I'm sure you've been asked <laughs> multiple times. Um, Believe what, it or not, I haven't. But you guys can try me. I don't know that I can answer it. Okay. All right. Um, what? So, from your experience as an agent, um, and just your prior knowledge, what kind of needs to be done other than the obvious, you know, the money involved? What what could kind of happen to get Lindor back with the organization? Or what yeah, what could help to just kind of make like a miracle signing for us? Because everybody knows the money is, is certainly the issue here. Is is he in his free agent year? So no, he has two more years left after this year, and then he can walk. Well, I, I think that, you know, Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff are two of the most competent. And by the way, they're followers of the power of nice. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, negotiate early. Don't wait till the last minute in today's world. Um, and and use a relationship if you have it. Um, and it may be that you can't give the most money. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You're in a world... With baseball, you compare your baseball and your football team and your basketball team where there is no salary cap. There's a tax. And the question is, is he important enough to the organization that the organization is willing to budget what it will take? And can he give a little in the process, too, because he may not get what he's going to get elsewhere. And it's not unlike when Cal Ripken was a free agent or Kirby Puckett was a free agent. I didn't. I got them to the top of the market, but I wasn't out to break records for myself. So I had to give a little as his agent in advising them. But the clubs had to give. They had to get to the top of the market in order to retain them. But you take those two guys and Joe Maurer, and here are three players in an age where players move to get more money, who got great money. Mm -hmm and remained a part of their community. Now, I don't know enough about Lindor and the Cleveland community and how much he's been connected with the community, but I do know he's a great and beloved player. So everything ought to be done. Yeah, everyone in Cleveland is just absolutely in love with him. So just compromise, really, is what we need to find. And and we've offered him deals before. We uh, Previously in his career, we offered him like a $100 million contract. But that's when he was younger, and obviously him and his agent were prepared and knew that he was the special type of player, so they did turn it down. Who was but his agent? His agent. That, uh, that is a good question. I can look it up real fast. But, you know, the team... That is something that we did not prepare for. You know, but the team <laughs> want to analyze, you know, who's his agent? What kind of deals has he done? Has he ever compromised financially? And it may be that... Yeah. There's no... You know, the, if you read my books... Negotiation isn't about saying, I want, you get. Negotiation is about doing all the research in the world so you're the best prepared person in the room and then figuring out how you communicate with someone so that there are positive vibes going back and forth and ultimately building a contract. It can be done, guys, but it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I guess, for Cleveland because... 
we're not as big as a market as other teams right. like Los Angeles or Boston or New York. So you're, it's just you're, you're, an extra sign. But Minnesota wasn't as big a market as New York or uh, Boston. They signed Joe, and Baltimore is not as big a market. They signed. Ke- it can be done. It can be done, but it's it's challenging work. Although I do think I this, it, it just kind of warms our heart hearing you say that. You know, just like it, it, it no, it gives us a sense of like, okay, maybe we can do this when but, it does a pretty. I'll say where the odds are in your favor to some extent is. I mentioned Chris and Mike, and they're two of the best in the business. So if someone's going to mm-hmm. do it, it's going to be them. And if they don't, it won't be right. they don't know or haven't tried. Right. You talked earlier okay. about uh, your uh, piecework with Israel and the players and everything. Well, not, not just Israel. I'm involved with an organization called Peace Players International. And this kind of fits in with that Churchill mm-hmm. quote, make a living by what you get, you make a life by what you give. And this Peace Players Mm -hmm. is Northern Ireland dealing with Catholic kids and Protestant kids who are at war with each other from time to time. In South Africa, between blacks and whites and coloreds, and in Cyprus, between Turks and Cypriots, and in Israel, between Palestinians and Israeli kids. And we've used basketball to build bridges between communities that are conflicting. And it's yeah. been an amazing tool. If you watch what Peace Players has done to build communication between Palestinian kids and Israeli kids in Israel, Jewish kids, um, and you see the lines of communication that have been built and the opportunities for peace, it gives you a little hope in a society which otherwise looks like it's nothing but war. Or um, just want to have any in the first place. But, and it shows the power of sport mm-hmm. as a yeah. unifying thing. You can get these kids on a court, give them a basketball, and put them on the same team, and all of a sudden, good things are happening. And so that that is what Peace Players is all about. And organizations like Peace Players are very important to me in today's world because we have got to find ways to cross the divides that, that split us up, and in America that split us up, as a nation and and build bridges. Mm-hmm. And we should give right. everybody a copy of The Power of Nice and maybe they would then figure it out. But that's what it's all about. Right. Yeah. And that is The Power of Nice, right? That's very cool. All right, so. We, our, just, we just hit 30 too. Yeah, our, our, it's perfect time. Our time's kind of coming to an end. Uh, it was great talking to you, Mr. Yeah. Uh, we just, just want to thank you like so much again. This is, it's extra nice of you to just go out of your way and take some time and let us interview you because we're obviously just two young kids trying to make something and right. having someone you'll, you'll as make, influential you'll as you helps so much. I got a feeling you'll make something of yourselves. And and again, remember what I said, just whatever you do, be the best at what you're doing because you don't know what's coming next, but you'll be ready for it. And right. it's been my pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you, Ron. Thank you so much. And then again, a huge thanks from all of us at the Hottest Take Sports podcast. Very nice of you to do this. Awesome. This episode today was sponsored by the B-Balls Baseball League, which was started in 1965 in the Lee Harvard. 300-plus kids played each summer between 1965 and 1980, and our new league was restarted in 2012, which is currently played at Warrensville Middle School Field. B-Buzz is a 501c3 nonprofit org and is currently seeking additional support in the player recruiting area. 
B-Buzz is also developing a business plan to create our baseball complex in the Warrensville Heights area, which will require land and funding. We are very proud of our rebirth and are truly excited about our future, which includes joining Little League International. Thank you to B-Buzz for sponsoring us today. Thank you guys if you made it this far listening to the Hottest Take Sports Podcast. You can find this on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. We are now officially on the iTunes Store and Spotify. Today's intro beat was made by Ace Banks on YouTube. We'll have a link to it in the description. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and stay updated with our weekly show. And make sure you rate the show and leave some feedback. Thanks again. See you all next time.